All right, the book of Jeremiah, chapter 6 is where we're supposed to be. Jeremiah chapter 6. I guess a couple of things. First, a general description of Jeremiah chapter 6. I know, um, trying to, again, trying to go through a book like this in any type of rapid pace is almost impossible. Well, I mean, I guess it's possible, but we have to realize how much we're having, we can't really always explain or try to answer every single question because there's just so many issues to try to work through. But we'll start with at least a summary of Jeremiah chapter 6 according to um, Haley's Bible Handbook, all right? We'll just read their description of Jeremiah chapter 6. This is how they describe Jeremiah chapter 6. Jeremiah chapter 6 is a vivid prophetic description of the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonian invaders, which becomes a horrible reality in Jeremiah's own lifetime. Over and over, he warns with pathetic insistence that repentance is their last possible chance to escape ruin. That's a, at least a, 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 now that doesn't mean we're going to be able to answer every single question and be able to try to address every single issue. Because again, you could each, probably each couple of verses, you could find enough issues. But just a general explanation is, this is supposedly a vivid prophetic description of the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonian invaders, which becomes a horrible reality in in Jeremiah's own lifetime, Over and over, he warns with pathetic insistence that repentance is their last possible chance to escape ruin. That gives us a basic idea of what we are looking at in chapter 6. Now, if you look up sermons on Jeremiah chapter 6, you're going to find over and over and over that uh, they, they typically focus on just a couple of verses, right? I think it's verse 16. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, really 16, maybe through 18, somewhere around those lines. That's where I was looking up sermons on Jeremiah chapter 6, and this is where most of them went. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, Thus saith the Lord, stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the, the old paths in the King James, the, the NIV says ancient paths. So let's read that again. Jeremiah 6, 16. Thus saith the Lord, stand ye in the ways and see and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way and walk therein and you shall find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk therein. Now, the reason that um, is probably, you can probably see why that's so popular to preach, Right. Everybody see why that would be so popular to preach? No, walk in the old ways. That's always the focus, right? So they're like, what do we need to do as a church? Get back to the old ways. And they'll give you three or four ways in which the old ways were, right? Okay. I mean, really, literally, it has nothing to do with us in any way, shape, or form. But okay, we'll make it about us. Walk in the old ways. And then here are the three or four things to get back to the old ways. We need to get back to, you know, old-fashioned prayer meeting. We need to get back to old, like, you know, they'll, they'll find these things that we need to get back to. And it's always funny, the old things that we need to get back to. Well, you, basically, you can pick and choose, but, but typically, they're like, you know, something from, 
you know, the 1900s or, you know, 19, you know, it's like, you know, it's like, well, how far back do you want to go? Let's get way back to the old ways where the, the early church sold all of their possessions and had everything. In, well, no, we don't want to go that far back. Uh, let's go back to where they met. How many times? Daily. Oh, nobody. No, we don't, we don't want to go back to that, right? Like, you know, oh, remember when Paul preached till midnight? Well, no, no, we don't want to go back to that. And it's really weird how we, what we want to go back to. Let's go back to the old ways. And then we determine what old ways we need to get back to. So it uh, drives me crazy. So, uh, that, but you can see why a pastor would go with that, because that's easy to preach, right? Because you can kind of jump into the text and do what? Grab a phrase and then get back out. Now, get back out as fast as you can, because when you get back into it, there's all these other complications. But also, and I was thinking about this, those kinds of sermons always seem to uh, go with the idea. All These sermons tend to go with the idea that all the pastor has to say is, this is what we should be doing, and the implication, the idea, is that what will happen? That, that we will do it, or that we can do it, and we will accomplish that. But 2,000 years of church history seems to show over and over that we don't. And so as I've been reading the book of Jeremiah... And, and, if you, and if you read it, I don't know how, what other, how other people feel, but I think you can feel it's, it's a pretty depressing read. That's my, my estimation, because it's basically what? Well, not in judgment, but failure, 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 failure. In fact, even right there in the famous verse that everyone quotes there, what does it say at the very end of chapter 6, verse 16? The very end, last, last very sentence. We will not walk in. It's, it's, it's a book of failure over and over and over and over and over. In fact, if you sit back and you look at the life of Israel in general, right? What is it a story of? Failure. It's a story of failure over and over and over. I mean, Israel every single time. Now, typically, when we preach that, right? When we preach the failure of Israel, what is typically the Christian response to the failure of Israel? What is typically the church response to the failure of Israel? Okay. Well, I mean, typically it's like, well, we should learn from their mistakes, but the assumption is, well, the assumption always is that we can do better than them. The assumption is always that we, we're not this. Like the, the assumption always is, it's not even about eschatology or who, who replaces who. The church's response to Israel's failure is, well, that was then, this is now. And then we, the go-to answer is always what? Why did Israel fail and why do we not fail? What, what, how does the church usually explain that? Okay, we have the Holy Spirit and they didn't. That's the go-to answer constantly, right? They don't have the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. Therefore, they fail. We succeed. But... When you get to the New Testament, what do you start finding almost instantaneously when you read the letters to the churches? Failure, 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 failure. Do you not? Correction, correction, failure, failure, correction, correction, failure, failure, failure. I mean, over and over and over, is it not? I mean, I mean, I, there's no way to get around it. When you get to Revelation and you get the message to the churches, what do you find? I have somewhat against it. Failure, failure, over and over and over. So the thing is, is do, do you see some dramatic change? Now, I know this is going to like, oh, I'm going to have Christians going to email me to, to 
uh, oh man, uh, people are going to get mad at me. But I will argue, do you see any massive fundamental change in the behavior of people from the Old Testament to the New? I don't think you do. Now, that, now people will get mad and say, no, because in the New Covenant, it replaces a heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. And all those people will know God. And, know, and I believe those, the problem is that they take that language of the New Covenant that's applied, I believe, directly to whom? Israel to a time that has yet to occur. They take and make it apply to us in the now. But if it applies to us in the now... Why are we still failing? Exactly, right. Yeah, yeah, why do we still need teachers to teach it? Like all the, all the problems. So I, I just, I think something, sometimes, and I, and I know this is not specifically directed to Jeremiah chapter 6, and I'm taking a little too much time on this, but the more I read it, the more I just ask, what, what is, what is a r- rational, reasonable expectation for the Christian life? Right? What, what should we expect? I'm not saying what God, God can put all the demands he wants, right? Okay, but I'm just saying that we have a mentality within the church that basically says our life should not look like anything like whose life? Israel's. That we should be completely different than them, right? And the expectation in most churches is that everyone should live in what way? Basically, Holy and perfect. Well, we would never never use the word perfect because we always got to give us an escape. But the overall general tone is that we basically should be that way. And I'm saying that we're, we're not. Now, I'm not saying we should. Listen, I'm not excusing it. I'm just saying that I wonder what the expectation should be. Because by the time you read Genesis and you finish the New Testament or the Old Testament, you're, I mean, I don't know about, shouldn't everyone be exhausted at that point? Shouldn't you just be like, for crying out loud, all it is is failure and judgment, failure. And not that the entire story of the Old Testament? Failure, judgment, failure, judgment, failure, judgment, failure, judgment, failure. And at some point, you're just like, I just don't, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. Finally, when we open up Matthew, that we'll call his name Jesus. Why? He's going to save his people from their sins. Now, the question is, what does it mean that he saves them from their sins? Does he save them from their sins because they're saved so that they will never sin again? Well, I don't believe so. He saves them from their sins by paying for the sins and then giving his righteousness to them. That's a radically different approach. And I just think when you listen to most preaching, it's always about moral, moral reform and moral behavior and it's, it's very just focused on that. So I think a lot of reason, a lot of people go to Jeremiah 6 and take that famous verse. And like, let's return to the old ways. is because it's like, that's, that's the answer to everything. Just go back to the old ways of doing things. And then your Christianity. And it's like, it's never that simple, is it? Yeah, I, I, I wish it could be that way. Don't you? Don't you wish I, you could just preach a sermon telling people, do this and do this and do this and do this. And everyone would just. Do it? I mean, that's the way I envisioned it. I mean, that's kind of the way I was taught. That's the way I envisioned it. And then you kind of realize it doesn't really work that way. And it not only does it not work that way in your life, it doesn't work that way in my life. And then you're kind of like, well, then how do we, what's the correct way of understanding this? 
I just want you to just think about that because the more you read Jeremiah, I, I'm, a, I'm hoping the more you realize, like, I don't know, you, all, you really have a couple of choices. Like, you either just look down on them as, man, what failures, or you start seeing that they're a lot like us. Maybe just a little different in how we express our sins, correct? All right, so Jeremiah chapter 6, we start in verse 1. So the, just a summary again of Jeremiah 6 is it's a vivid prophetic description of the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonian invaders, which become a horrible reality in Jeremiah's own lifetime. Over and over, he warns with pathetic insistence that repentance is their last possible chance to escape ruin. All right, so this is is telling everyone what's going to happen when the Babylonians show up. Okay, that's Jeremiah 6. Now we're going to just go through it. Ah, man, we've got 30 verses yeah, it's going to take me at 30 minutes just to read it, right? Okay, here we go. We're just going to go through it. As, I don't know. All we can do is do what we can, right? I can't really worry about time because it's just, I don't think there's any way I'm going to finish this in 30 minutes. So here we go. But something to think about. All right, it starts in Jeremiah chapter 6 with verse 1. O ye children of Benjamin, gather yourselves to flee out of the midst of Jerusalem, And blow the trumpet in Tekoa, and set up a sign of fire in Beth Hakarim, for evil appeareth out of the north and great destruction. And some people don't say Hakarim, some say Hasirim, I think is how some say it. But Hakarim is how I'm going to go with it, uh, because I did hear preachers pronounce it that way as well. So, all right, but let's read that again. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 1. O ye children of Benjamin, gather yourselves to flee out of the midst of Jerusalem, Blow the trumpet in Tekoa, set up a sign of fire in Beth Hakram, for evil appeareth out of the north and great destruction. All right. Other translations have chapter 6, verse 1, reading this way. Run for cover out of Jerusalem, Benjamites, sound the ram's horn in Tekoa, raise a smoke signal over Beth Hakram, for disaster threatens from the north, even a crushing blow. All right? The NIV have a, a different translation there? Uh-huh. Okay. Now, there is some... In fact, I'm going to try to pull this up. There is a... There is some debate here. Um, all right. Well, I, I won't get into it. There's a little bit of back and forth in exactly how we understand this. I'm going to go with the general way of understanding it. I'm not going to get too much into the, the weeds here and all some of the issues. Just again, all I can say is over and over and over in these verses, all I can say is probably because... Not only, or just remember, there's always a couple of issues. One, remember we have a constant difference between the Masoretic text and the Septuagint and the Vulgate, right? Okay, so that can always create a problem, right? Well, wait a minute. Why? This translates it this way. This translates this this way. We could spend forever looking at every difference, all right? So just sometimes we have to address it. Sometimes I just can't address it. Sometimes there are wildly different interpretations. I know that's not a, a shock, but sometimes it's just like, wait a minute, 
They're reading it in a completely different way than we are, right? Sometimes there's confusion on who is speaking. Sometimes there's confusion on what they're telling the people actually to do. Sometimes people believe it, they're saying do this, but they're saying it in an ironic way. And so, there, I mean, there's just so many issues in each and every one of these verses. So I always have to go, like, how far do I, like, okay, guys, we're going to jump into this. Because in some cases, jumping into it, when, when we're done, all we can do is, like, I think I understand the verse a little bit better, but you're not going to understand the chapter any better, right? You're just going to know all of the controversies surrounding each and every one. Okay. I wish we could try to address every controversy around each and every one. But in many of them, guess when it was said and done, guess what would happen? We still wouldn't have a definitive answer because... There's 15 different views on it. I just, I hate that reality. Don't you, don't, don't you wish we as Christians could just read Jer- Jeremiah and go, that's what it means, right? But it's not, it's not the case, all right? So we're just going to go with the basic idea here, all right? So in Jeremiah 6.1, what do you see being said? All right, get out of town, all right? Run for cover, uh, out of Jerusalem, and they call them Benjamites. Now, according to one uh, reference uh, commentary, the reason the people of Benjamin are mentioned is that geographically Jerusalem belonged to the territory of Benjamin. Moreover, Jeremiah was a Benjamite and had strong ties with his own tribesmen. That's according to one commentary. All right, It says, gather yourselves to flee from the midst of Jerusalem. The idea was that a siege army would come to the capital of the southern kingdom and those wise enough to see it would flee the city before the siege army surrounded and conquered Jerusalem right and so it tells them to do what run for cover and then what else is there to do depending on your translation okay well there's a couple of things so depending on your translation does everyone have an idea in your translations flee or run Right? Okay, everybody see that? Okay. Some translations, I think, have gather or assemble yourselves. And some say it's being said in kind of an ironic way. It's like, like gather yourselves and go ahead and try to fight because you're, you're not, it's not going to work. But most of the translations go with the idea of fleeing, getting out. All right. So we have the idea of basically fleeing. What else in this verse are they said to do? Okay, blow a trumpet to warn, so to flee. But while you're fleeing... Warn others, and then next, a smoke signal over Beth, again, depending on who you listen to, I'm just going to go with Hakarim, for disaster threatens from the north, even a crushing blow. Now, the idea of um, the signal fire was specifically mentioned in certain documents that eventually, uh, which documents the uh, the eventual Babylonian invasion the use of such signals was an ancient Mesopotamian method of military communication. So, I mean, everybody knows the signal fire, right? Basically, letting the fire know to let everyone else know what? Hey, get it. Basically, the whole concept here, whether we try to break down every little detail, is to do what? Get out. Flee. Meaning that there's no, the idea mainly is there's no hope to stay. Right? There's no hope to stay. Get out. All right. What happens in verse 2? Now, depending on your translation, all right, King James says it this way I have likened the daughter of Zion to a comely and delicate woman. Right? Other translations, though she is beautiful and delicate, I will destroy daughter Zion. 
How does the NIV have it? All right. So Judah, this is the way some explain this. Judah's, Judah likened to think of themselves as a beautiful and refined. Yet a lovely and delicate woman can't stand before an invading army. That would be a terrible mismatch in the coming invasion. So it's the idea that he, that according to, depending on the translation, I've likened the daughter of Zion to a comely and delicate woman. Okay, hey, basically, you're just nothing more than a beautiful, delicate woman in the face of an army, of the army of Babylon. And how is that going to end? Not well. Not going to end well, right? So, in other words, no matter how refined and beautiful you may think you are, no matter how refined and beautiful you may even be externally, you're going to be destroyed. In fact, he makes it, he's pretty dogmatic, is he not? Right? Depending on, on the translation you are reading, um, he's, he's, he's pretty, um, like some translations have, I will destroy daughter Zion. Like, I, I'm going to destroy you, okay? You're, you're, it's not going to go well, all right? Next verse. The shepherds with their flock shall come unto her, they shall pitch their tents against her roundabout. They shall feed everyone in his place. Now, once again, what we, what we have here is what? He's using what kind of language here? Using lots of figurative language, correct? Figurative language describing Judah as a woman, right? And now what's being referred to, what, what's being referred to in this verse? Well, just the, the enemy here is being called shepherds with their flocks. That's, that's what's being described here, the enemy. The shepherd with their flock shall come unto her. They shall pitch their tents against her roundabout, and they shall feed everyone in this place. Basically, it's like shepherds bringing in what? Their flock and doing what? Taking over, right? If you come in and bring your flock... I mean, you're, you're planning on staying, right? Okay. Yeah, you're, and they're coming in and like, we're just going to stay here, right? Meaning they're coming in almost as easy as a shepherd would just bring in their animals. And like, it doesn't appear like they're, it's almost like there's going to be very little resistance to it is the way I'm understanding it. Okay. Does that make some sense? All right. Um, yeah. Some, one commentary puts it this way. Drive their flocks of soldiers eager to feed upon the richness of the area. Like the soldiers are going to come in and partake of whatever is there. Does, does that kind of make sense? All right. Verse 4. Now, uh, depending on translations here. All right, well, okay. Verse 4 says, Prepare ye war against her. Arise, let us go up at noon. Woe unto us, for the day goeth away, for the shadow of the evening are stretched out. Right now, there's possible play on words here. One uh, commentary says the Hebrew verb here for prepare may suggest the religious rituals preceding a battle and the ancient institution of the holy war. So the idea is to prepare ye war against her. Now, who's preparing war against her? Who's the her? 
Okay, this almost like God, this almost speaks as like God is directing whom? The Babylonians, right? Okay, now I know this raises, this raises, oh, now on one hand, we're not shocked by this or surprised by this, right? Because yeah, God over and over and over is seen as the one utilizing the pagan nation to come against them, right? To bring judgment. Uh, so, but it, it, it can be also philosophically maddening because you're like, wait a minute. Um, if God can control what the Babylonians are doing, why didn't he just control Judah to repent? Right? That, that's always difficult, right? Like, now you can say, well, one, he's just utilizing their own sinful nature and not really having to do much. But it's just like, Whenever you start dealing with God's control, like on one hand, sometimes we celebrate God's control, right? Like, that's right. He used those pagans. God's in charge. Even the pagan's heart belongs to God. That's right. And we're like, yeah, almost like we celebrate it. But then you're like, well, wait a minute. Yeah, well, I know. But I mean, no matter how you look at it, it's, it's going to be troubling. Yeah, you're, you're, okay, yeah, you're like, if he's got the power to do that, he could have used the power in the opposite way, which raises all kinds of questions. But it seems to be here, prepare ye war against her and let us go up at noon. Woe unto us for the day goeth away, for the shadows of the evening are stretched out. It seems like trying to figure out exactly who's speaking to whom, right? Uh, I know, uh, how does the NIV tra- uh, translate the entire verse? So is it, how do, how do we understand that verse? Well, see, the commentaries here are weird. Like the first part, prepare war against her. They don't, this commentary, at least some of the commentaries, don't describe who's preparing war against whom. They don't describe it, right? They just say, well, it could be some kind of religious uh, ritual. Um, this one just skips it. <laughs> of course, uh, that way to go. But just look, look at the kind of the confusion here. Well, the problem is verse four itself, because you seem to have conflicting things, right? Because look what happens. Set them apart for war against her. Um, or uh, we're in verse four, right? Okay, uh, I've got two different translations going on here. I'm like, wait a minute, that makes no sense. All right, prepare ye war against her. Arise and let us go up at noon. Now that sounds clearly like God directing the Babylonians, yes? But then the next part, woe unto us. Woe unto whom? Woe unto us, for the day goeth away, for the shadows of the evening are stretched out. Arise, let us go by night and let us destroy her palaces. But then back to five seems to be back to the Babylonians. So I, I, I think that second part, even though, listen, listen, this commentary says, woe to us, the day goes away. God reminded Judah that time was running out, even though this judgment would not come for many years. The tipping point, see, I, I don't see that that goes back to Judah. Yeah, I think this is the Babylonians. I think that, okay, let me try to explain. All right, God is telling them, prepare ye war against 
her, Judah. He's already likened her unto a woman. All right? We've already seen that. Agreed? All right? And let us go up at noon. So they're going to go up at noon. And then I know the King James says, woe unto us. The NIV says, but alas... For the day goeth away, for the shadows of the evening are stretched out. Meaning, hey, let's hurry up and go before it gets dark, right? Hey, oh, we got, we got, I mean, we want to get rid of all of them. We want to destroy them. And then what do they say in the next verse? Arise, let us go by night and let us destroy your palaces. It's almost like, let's go at noon. Oh, it's going to get dark. But even if it gets dark, I think that's all the, referring to the Babylonians. I, I know a lot of commentaries disagree. You know, I mean, at this point, let's just make it clear, especially for those listening online. You can disagree with everything I say about every verse and because, it's, because <laughs> that's basically how it works. That language is confusing, is it not? Because the only other way to translate it would be what? What would be your options? Prepare ye war against her. That would be telling Judah to fight the Babylonians. And that clearly does not make any sense. Agreed? I mean, he told them to get out. Right, yeah. That, 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 yeah. yeah, I mean, they're clearly they're not going into Babylon to take out her palaces. Right. So to me, this is God speaking to the Babylonians telling them to go in, and then they're, they're going to be like, oh, no, we're going to run out of time, but arise, let us go by night, and let us destroy her, uh, her palaces. And then verse six, or verse 6. For whom? Well, I, I don't, not in that context. Not in that context, because the next part is just, the, the, yeah, the times ran. We know Babylon, Babylonians will be judged at a later time, but in that context, seems to just be they're upset that they're running out of time. All right, then verse six: For thus saith the Lord of hosts, or for thus hath the Lord of hosts said. I can read correctly: Hew ye down trees, cast them out against Jerusalem. This is the city to be visited. She is holy oppression in the midst of her. Now, once again, that's God speaking to whom? Babylon. I mean, like the whole, the whole context here is obvious, right? And what is he telling them to do? Yeah, I mean, does he tell them exactly what to do? Right, he tells them exactly what to do. Um, cut down trees and build a mound against Jerusalem. Right? I mean, th- this was exactly telling them what to do and how to do it. Um, because, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't know how else you can get around that, all right? And then uh, he says, uh, see what verse, you know, verse 7, verse 6, cut down the tree, uh, the city's to be visited, she is holy uh, oppression in the midst of her. What does the NIV say? She's holy what in the midst of her? The, Jerusalem is the city to be visited. Okay, the city is filled with oppression, all right? The next verse, as a fountain casteth out her waters, so she casteth out her wickedness, violence and spoil is heard in her. Before me continually is grief and wounds. He basically telling the Babylonians, you go up against them because of all the wickedness 
inside of the city, inside of them. Once again, demonstrating that Judah, I mean, this is Judah, uh, is in a perpetual state of disobedience and sin, and it's pretty bad, is it not? I mean, he describes it as, you know, continually is grief and wounds. Next verse. Be thou instructed, O Jerusalem, lest my soul depart from thee, lest I make thee desolate, a land not inhabited. Now he goes back and speaks to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. What does he tell tells them to do? Right, as one commentary puts it, even within the announcement of judgment is the inherent invitation to receive the wisdom of God and avoid the threatened calamity. It was an invitation that Judah would not properly receive. All right, they would not receive it. Now, this this becomes a very important question. This becomes a very it becomes a very important theological question, and this theological question hangs over really the entire book. Really, it really hangs over the entire book. All right, and 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 it really comes down to this: uh, uh, as a Christian, there are two very different worlds of of perspectives on this theological question, and the question is why does someone repent of sin or why does someone refuse to repent of sin? Why does someone repent and why does someone refuse to repent? What's the, there are two different schools of theological thought. What are the two different schools of theological thought and why someone repents or why someone doesn't repent? What are the two different schools of theological thought? Okay, well, one says you repent or don't repent, and it has everything to do with whom? You. You. You repent or you refuse to repent. It's something you do. It's God is not involved in it. God just gives you the, the call to repent. He may give you the reasons you should, but that's it. He's outside. You, it's like it's, an, it's the external call to repent. It's an external call. You hear it, and you're like, nope, or yes. Therefore, if Bobby was to repent and Stephen wouldn't repent, what's the difference between Bobby and Stephen? Bobby was smarter, more sensitive, like it's something good in Bobby. So who gets the glory? Bobby. Bobby's just a better guy than Stephen. Now, the other theological school is what? We repent because God grants us Repentance. Now, if we, some will say God grants us repentance and salvation, but if God is granting repentance and salvation, then who is granting repentance after salvation? Well, we, we continue that theological line of thought, it would be God. Now, you see the, the, the philosophical problems you run into, though, right? Okay, so if Bobby and Stephen are caught in the same sin, Bobby repents and Stephen doesn't. Well, you don't get the glory, but why would Stephen get the blame? <laughs> that, that leads to serious problems, does it not? And if God's the one granting the repentance, then what's the next logical thought? If just back it up a step. If God's the one granting the repentance, then why God didn't change the heart in the first place in order to keep the person from committing the sin? So, like, who, they, they will not listen, right? I mean, has that already, already been said? And is that not being said again? 
Uh, he's telling them, listen, I make thee desolate, a land not inhabited. Well, guess what they will not do? Even the commentary says, they will not receive it. Right? Next part, verse 9. All right? Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall thoroughly glean the remnant of Israel as a vine, turn back thine hand as a grape gatherer into the baskets. Simply put, what's going to happen here? God warned Judah that they would be picked clean by the Babylonians, even as those who were gleaned the remaining grapes from a vine took everything they could. Basically, they're going to they're come pick everything, right? Going to pick everything. I know sometimes, what, sometimes you're like, God, could you just say it? Like, I said, using the figurative language, but the figurative language is throughout. Yes, over and over and over. All right. Uh, to whom shall I, and then look what he says in verse 10. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ear is uncircumcised and they cannot hearken. Behold, the word of the Lord is unto them a reproach. They have no delight in it. Now, as this commentary says, the Old Testament speaks many times of uncircumcised hearts and lips, but this is the only mention of an uncircumcised ear. Stephen used this figure of speech in speaking to the Jewish council in Acts 7. All right? So this is the first time, but the idea of something being uncircumcised, an uncircumcised heart, uncircumcised lips, or an uncircumcised ear is the idea of what? Yeah, the, the idea is that it is rebellious, that it's not uh, following God. Now, here's the thing. So two things are said about them in that verse, right? What verse is that? Ten. Two. They are uncircumcised ears, or as your, the NIV says, closed ears. And then what else? Yeah, the word of God, they find no delight in it, or the word is offensive to them. So they got two problems. Their ears cannot hear, and the word of God, they take no delight in it, or it's an offense to it, depending on which translation you go with. Two problems. Two problems. Now, what's the solution to those problems? Now, once again, we're going back to a theological issue. How, how does one fix an uncircumcised ear or a closed ear, and how does one stop, the word of God stop being offensive to you, and you find delight in it? How do you fix these? Right. Typically, we would say, well, God has to open the ear, and God has to grant the delight for the word. Now, others will say, no, 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 we have to do. Now, what's the typical, like, the, the tip, like a lot of people would preach this more like, hey, because this is backslidden Judah, right? And we can find ourselves in the same situation. So that they would preach it. Some of you here tonight, some of you here this morning, depending on when they're preaching the sermon, you may be someone who has an uncircumcised ear and you may be someone here who has no delight in God's word because your spiritual condition is so bad. And tonight we're going to fix that. So then they will basically tell you, how do you fix it? Well, repent. Well, so then that places it upon you, your action. So you repent. And how do you repent typically in those services? Come to the altar, pray, hopefully cry a little bit, right? And then you get up and it's supposedly all fixed. 
Some will say, well, no, 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 no. You have to go through. You need to, you need to do, and it's, it's, it's going to be a list of actions you have to take, right? It's going to be a list of actions you have to take in order to fix it. Right. But I'm, but I'm saying, right, but I'm saying typically though, like, I don't know how you can fix it, right? Like if your ear is closed and you have no delight for God's word, how do you fix that? So then some people say, well, you just pray, pray, pray. Well, how much do I pray? Because how many Christians truly delight in God's word? I mean, when we say, now the King James says delight, right? Um, yeah, uh, they have no delight in it. What's the Hebrew word there for delight? Let's just see. Let's just see. Because I know the NIV goes a different direction. But let's just see. What's the Hebrew word for delight there? I know we're not making a lot of... What's the Hebrew word for delight? You don't have to give me the actual Hebrew word. What does it mean? It's verse 10. You don't have to pronounce it. Just what's the definition? Desire, be pleased with, been to. There we go. In other words, that this is someone who, who at some point you take pleasure, you delight, you want, you desire God's word. Now, the, the problem is, is that these individuals, their ear is closed and they take no delight. They have no delight in God's word. They take no pleasure in it. Now, we, everyone should be able to relate to some level to this, yes? Because there's times we do what to God's word? I'm putting my hands over my ears like, no, 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 no. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it, right? I don't want to hear it, right? And then, then I think anyone who's been a Christian for any length of time has to acknowledge that not, first of all, no two Christians ever delight in God's word the same. Like anyone who claims that that's true, they're, they're drinking heavily, right? We don't. Agreed? Right? And, and, and because then, what, what, what would it come down to? How do you, how do you know? L- listen, if you were to do a test, how do you know if you have an uncircumcised ear and your ear is closed to God's word? What would we be, be, be the test to see if you have an uncircumcised ear and that your ear is closed to God's word? What would we say? What would be the way of knowing it? Oh, we would immediately go to obedience, right? Right? We would immediately judge it by obedience. Well then, so if you truly hear God's word, if you truly hear it, then you will obey it. That's we almost correlate it. Well, how many do we ever be holy as God is holy? All right, well then that means you don't have an open ear to it. So that immediately raises all kinds of questions, right? Well, then the big one is, what would be the test to know if you delight in it? Oh, now it comes down to, it's going to come down to very basic things. Like, actually, how much time you read, study, 
memorize. Oh, come on. And you know that like, and so immediately we're like, what do we do? But once again, if that's their problem, what's the spiritual solution to that problem? But what's weird is the, the solution to the problem is the very thing that demonstrates you have the problem. So like if you'll just read more, if you'll just study more, but can you not read and study without any delight? <laughs> exactly right. Well, well that's because they heard it wrong. But I mean, so then that, that guarantees that just hearing it, yeah, oh man, there, there are all kinds of issues can rise up. But I just want you to see that theologically, there's not easy answers here, right? I just want you to at least live within the tension. If it's a free will one, at least it's easier in this sense. The, the problem is who? Us. And we just have to figure out how to fix it, right? And, but we get the credit for it. Now, people say, no, no, you don't get the credit. No, no, no. If it's based on my own free will, I get the credit. Because God can't do anything to impact that free will, or he's not letting my will be free, all right? So, so but the only problem with the free will one is, the, the only way to fix it is I have to fix it. And it just seems like, how can I fix a closed ear? Hey, how do I, how do I fix it? How do I, in a sense, circumcise my ear so that I can then hear? Like, I, how do I do that? Like, well, you need to pray more. And, and, and it's the go-to. The answers to everything in the, what are the answers to everything in the Christian life? No matter what the problem is, what are, what are the go-to answers for everything in the Christian life? Pray more. Read your Bible more. Okay. Uh, go to church. Small group. That's especially in 2023. Everything's small group. That would fix anything. Everything. Everything. You can be dying of cancer. Go to a small group. You can be shot three times. Don't go to the ER. Go to a small group. Okay, that's the in every church, small groups is the solution to every problem in the history of humankind. And it's like even if you're in a small church like this, people still think you need small groups. I'm like, well, already small enough, right? What is, we're gonna break down. We're gonna Stephen and someone will be. They'll be meeting somewhere on Monday night. The two of them and like, what, 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 like I don't get it. All right, but that's the, isn't that the go-to answers for everything? You don't believe me, just come up with a problem, make up a problem, go on Christian social media and do a, do a Facebook for all your Christian friends and say, I'm struggling with this and, and report back to me the answers. I guarantee you the answers are going to be pray about it, read your Bible, memorize some scripture, go to church, find a small group, get an accountability partner. It's the same tired t- every stinking time. Every time. You think after 2,000 years, those steps would have fixed every problem that's ever existed in the history of Christianity. But if the solution is God, well, then that raises all kinds of other problems, does it not? Yeah, because, well, why wouldn't God just have done what? Fix their ear? And give them a delight for God's word. And then guess what? Would there have been a need for 70 years in Babylonian captivity? The answer should be no. Those are the questions that I, at least I have. 
All right? Now, because, now look at what happens in verse 11. I, we're not even getting anywhere close to this, but that's okay. All right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we're almost out of time. All right, but that's okay. We'll just, we'll stop there. We'll just stop there. There's no way even trying to get to verse 11. All right. So, this is what we have here. I think, I think so far, how would we be a good way to summarize verses 1 through 10? Judgment is coming. Judgment's coming. The Babylonians going to take them out. And he wants them to listen and repent, but they're not going to do so. And which leads us with the theological dilemma of what causes someone to, what, what changes, what causes change in your Christian life? What, what fixes your spirituality? What fixes you, right? Like when you're in a bad spiritual state, what fixes you? Now, I, I will argue that modern day Christianity tries to fix people's spirit. Now, I, I know I'm going to get in a lot of trouble for this. I think a lot of the supposed solutions within Christianity, I think we get the tried and true list that everyone gives you. But I, I think churches try to fix it through what? What do you think? How, how do you think churches try to fix people's spiritual, quote unquote, apathy or, or rebellion? I think the church has found a pattern of trying to fix it through spiritual manipulation. Right? How do you fix the teenagers who are spiritually apathetic? Come on, it's summer 2023. Come on. Send them to camp, right? Now, what do you do in church camp? I Okay, someone has been in this church for a long time. Isolate, indoctrinate, and manipulate, right? Isolate, indoctrinate, manipulate. Someone sent me a TikTok from a, a like a, she may be like in her 20s talking about all of her experiences in church camp. And she goes through the basic, like exactly how it works, right? You get teenagers there that are all emotional. You keep them busy, staying up late. So then now they're going to make them in a, an emotionally vulnerable state, right? And then you keep them busy. Then you do these like talks and, 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 and you know, when everyone's together at night, you, you just start building the emotions. And then until you get close to the last night, you have the big emotional outpouring and everyone comes to the altar crying and, and you, everybody holding hands oh, because they're just emotionally worn out. You've broken them down. And then they all think they're going to go home and, you know, they're going to rush hell with a water gun. And then three months later, They have a crash. Okay? That's how it works for teenagers. For many adults, what, what, what's used? The entire church conference industrial complex. You pay hundreds of dollars to go see your favorite. So, and people say, and I'm so sick of Christians complaining about celebrity culture and then promote their co- conference. We got to stop the celebrity co- culture in the church. But our conference—I've I gotten four emails this week from conferences. One's one hundred and thirty-five dollars. Like you know, it's come to our conference, and and they always promise that if you come to your conference, it will be what life-changing, life-altering, because you're getting all hyped. It's all the hype, right? And how long does it last until the next year? Where you need another life-altering conference? So I was going to say that used to be the go to. Now the good thing about revival service is at least you didn't have to pay $135 to get in. Right? You got in for free. At least I do applaud that. But uh, how did it work uh, here? Well, we, y'all from Tuscola. I'm, I grew up here, right? We had, didn't you have two uh, revivals a year? I always remember the fall revival because that's when I became a Christian, 
right? And then what, what was the other one? Was it spring or summer? I can't remember. Okay, however, for some reason, everybody remembers the fall revivals, right? I always... Oh, okay, all right. See, I need all you old people to tell me how things used to work in the olden days, okay? Yeah. Back in the old days, right? The old, okay, see, see, uh, see, having old people here help me. Oh, yeah. Right. 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 But, yeah, but that, that people for vacation Bible school, that was just to send your kids to get rid of them, you know, because they're driving you crazy in the middle of summer. So, but, but yeah, but for the adults, the, the, fall, the fall revival was a big deal. And it lasted a week every night. You, you, you started on a Sunday, and you went all the way to the following Sunday. Every night, every night. And, then, and that was a big deal. And was there not a lot of emotions going? People doing all that? And there's, uh, the church is always trying to find a way to fix it. Because the church always knows people are becoming spiritually apathetic or complacent or they're backslidden or what. And so you've got to, we got to get them fired up. So you start some campaign, you got some program, you got to do so. But that's using manipulation or, or just earthly, fleshly tactics. I don't, I, the, the issue is well, your theology will really determine what you think should be done. Now, if it's God, that re- I don't have answers to those questions. Those questions are far beyond. Those questions make no sense to me. But if it's us, then, I, man. One, that seems that you almost have to be semi-Pelagian or Pelagian, right? You've got to almost throw out the reform. But it just seems like a lot of credit for us. And then the issue is, well, if I got Bobby to repent, how come I can't get Stephen to repent? Oh, well, his free will. Okay, well, then how much do I try? If it's his free will. It's got to be up to him, so do I worry about it? And you say, well, we need to pray for Stephen. Why do we need to pray for Stephen? If it's his free will, do I want God to do something to his free will? Because then that wouldn't be free. All right, so then that, right, 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 right. Obviously, what I'm trying to say is every side struggles with how to handle these issues, right? Because the free will people will be sometimes the people who want to pray the most. I'm like, your free will should be like, well, there's no point in praying because God can't do anything for them because all we can do is give them the message and then that's it. God can't do anything else. And so, but then Calvinists sometimes want to act like free will and then sometimes free will want to act like Calvinists and because, and, and, and I'm not even calling inconsistency there. It's just the struggle. Because we all know that in my spiritual life and your spiritual life, there's times I have an uncircumcised ear and no delight in the things of God. I don't want to hear it and I don't feel it. My ear is open to something else. And there's no easy way to fix the ear. No easy way to fix the ear. The only thing I can think of, I'll just close with this illustration. Last night I was watching boxing, and you know how sometimes their ear gets, the cauliflower ear, like all, you know, the skins out of it? Well, this guy threw, in boxing match, this guy throws a left hook, boom, hits the ear, and it just goes, just like busted open, and blood was everywhere. It was horrifying, and there was skin hanging there. It was it was so bad. And of course, the other boxer just kept going for the ear, kept going for the ear, just keep pounding it, you know, until finally they had to stop the fight because like this is horrifying. But I guess that fixes it. 
All right? That will bust open the ear, right? Okay, so do we need a spiritual punch to the side of the ear? Well, what, who, who does that? Like, I, look, when I was a young preacher, you think whose responsibility is it to do it? Mine. And I, how do I do Yell, right? Pound the pulpit. What is wrong with you people? Right? And then you kind of realize, that don't really work. Because not only if I'm yelling at what's wrong with you people, I realize what's wrong with me. And so that doesn't really fix anything. Now, you can do it in a way to manipulate people to get them emotional, right? You know, you, you, you get a, raise your voice a little bit, but then you got to end it with a sad story. And then you cry, and then they cry, and then everyone feels bad. But that lasts for how long? <laughs> Next Sunday. So, yeah, so how do you fix it? I don't know. There's no easy answer, but that's something to at least consider, and we'll finish the chapter in the next hour. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, we, the one thing I have at least seen, I can't speak for anyone else, Lord, is how much we are like Judah, how much we don't hear, how much we don't delight, how many false gods we run to. We are, we are like them in every way possible. And Lord, understanding how to fix these problems. The church for 2,000 years has struggled to find the answer. It seems our only real hope is what you have done for us in Christ uh, and how this plays out in everyday life will always be a mystery and confusing, but help us continue to try to understand it to the best of our ability. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,